Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that sets itself mediocre goals at the start of the year and failed to achieve even those in 2023. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Amazingly, 2023 is drawing to a close and so it's time to look back on our movers and shakers picks. As long-time listeners may recall, at the start of each year, uh, and we have done, I think, since about 1798, we pick the men and, indeed, women we think will move and shake British politics in 2023. We haven't had chance to check in with our picks since early January. Uh, who knows who's going to be the winner, as defined by our rather vague, arbitrary criteria. We'll start with our leader's pick first. You picked... Rishi Sunak, Steve, who amazingly still the Prime Minister, um, at least at the time of recording this. I pick Keir Starmer, who, less surprisingly, is still leader of the Labour Party. What are your thoughts here? This is an interesting one for me because Sunak hasn't had a good year, to say the least. And normally, in terms of being a mover and a shaker, we talk about you being the one to, especially if you're the Prime Minister, being the one to set the agenda, like drive things through, or whatever it might be. Sunak hasn't done that. I think that's that's quite clear. Um, so, which kind of leads you to go, well, it must be Keir Starmer then. Um, but fundamentally, the approach, the tactics, the strategy that Starmer's team have kind of put in place for the time being has been don't rock the boat, don't really say much, don't really do that much necessarily, don't take anything for granted, but um, don't, you're not necessarily leading the debate in any particular way i i would argue um across a across a lot of the major things we are starting to see a few things, bits and pieces kind of trickle out now as towards the end of the year but for the most part there's starmer hasn't necessarily done much i would argue to demonstrate that he himself has like moved things and shake shaken things around other than maintaining that um, significant lead over the Conservatives, which is by no means a, a small feat. But Starmer has not necessarily done a lot directly himself, or his team haven't done a lot directly himself to kind of move things and shake things up directly themselves, which is an interesting kind of like counterbalance. I feel like this is the first time with, with, since we've been doing this where amongst like the, the, you know, the primary two people, it's almost like it, it's not quite a draw because I think I think Starmer, just by virtue of still maintaining the position he's in, is important. But he's not done that much, it doesn't feel like, throughout the year necessarily to 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 make an impact. I think that's slightly harsh. I, I, I see what I see where you're going from, uh, given that Keir Starmer is in that sort of Roy Jenkins-esque carrying a vase carefully down a flight of stairs and making sure you don't drop it. Um, but in a sense, I think maintaining that 15, 20-point poll lead, that's still a, a fairly impressive thing to do. And what that poll lead has let him do, I think, is look more prime ministerial. So, for instance, appearing at Davos, appearing at COP28, and and actually spending more time at those events than Sunak 
was. And I think that does make him look more prime ministerial. I mean, there was one just over the Christmas period where Starmer go uh, went to visit troops. And uh, there's a, a very striking photo, which looks like it's some sort of Photoshop war photo job of you know, uh, Starmer with a very bright face compared to people with sort of um, more sort of camouflaged, I suppose, grubby faces in the background. It looks like something from a war film. I think that you can see from the reaction to some of his speeches, and he has started, I think, to outline in the various speeches on the missions that Labour was undertaking government and a lot of the work that obviously Sue Gray now she's coming as his chief of staff behind the scenes is starting to fashion what a Labour government would do um, as we talked about in our last episode though a lot a lot of that isn't public yet because if there was a decent policy the government would nick it and if there were if it was a bad policy it would lead the headlines but we have seen during the Christmas and New Year period some policies like the um, expansion in childcare. We we're starting to see some of them come out, and I imagine again, I think the the shadow cabinet have been given a deadline of February for future stuff. Start, and you you, you kind of get the impression that Starmer has a strategy, as you say. It's maybe not rocking the boat; it's getting some barnacles off the boat and some of the more self unpopular offers they think the Tories might attack in the election. Whereas Sunak, as we've talked about, doesn't really have a strategy, is obviously doesn't rate Starmer, and you kind of get the impression this is someone who is waking up every morning, uh, a bit like uh, there's a chess player called Aaron Nimzovich, who after he lost a, a match to a particular player, stood up and in the tournament hall shouted, like, why must I lose to this idiot? And you kind of get the impression that Sunak is every morning sitting uh, watching reading the papers and saying why am i losing to this guy who i don't really rate and therefore is trying everything he can to try and claw back a poly and it just isn't working for him trying to do everything he can other than anything that would actually make a difference because fundamentally the issue they've got is that all of the issues that they have been damaged by on the Tory side are things that require money to fix and they don't want to spend more money uh, and if they do want to spend money, they want to spend it on things like the, uh, you know, tax cuts and things, because that's not good red meat for the Tory base. I say, I think it is right that Starmer kind of wins this over overall compared to Sunak, because I just don't think you can make a compelling case of any sort that Sunak's done anything impressive this 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 year, and he's been very reactive across everything. I, th- I think it's fair to say, but I, I just think it's interesting that the careful, careful approach that Starmer's a uh, Starmer's uh, adopted, well, not just this year, but for previous years as well, but certainly this year, um, has resulted in a... It's a year when not a lot has happened uh, in terms of what, what is visible to, to most people. Stuff is definitely happening in the background. I know that, you know that. You know, we're both Labour activists. We we understand that. Um, but it's just quiet. It's, it's all quiet on the Western Front, so to speak, you know? It's almost a little too quiet, it feels, at times. <laughs> I don't know. I I think again, it's it's not that Labour under Starmer hasn't announced a lot of policies. It's just that then they don't generally tend to get announced in the press. I th- I still think that what is missing is an attack on the Conservatives, which goes beyond competence and is a bit more ideological. Um, on the other hand, I think that attack on the Conservatives for incompetence has really hit home. Um, especially since trust and also has stuck 
to Sunak, even though, as you say, Sunak is ideological. He's of the factor right, right. He doesn't. He's a fiscal conservative. Doesn't really believe in spending money. It's one of the reasons HS2 got cancelled. But also, at the start of this year, Sunak tried to make the case that he was a technocrat who would deliver on stuff and get things done, and had five um, five pledges which looked like mo- most of them we thought he might achieve at the start of the year anyway. Halving inflation isn't really anything to do with his government, and a lot of that is naturally happening anyway. Um, growing the economy hasn't really happened. We saw um, in the summer, um, Sunak made a big play about how growth forecasts were uplifted, which made the UK economy look like it had performed at least as well, if not better, than a lot of our European partners since the pandemic. Recently, we've just seen growth estimates of the last couple of quarters downgraded so that it's quite possible that we'll enter an election year with the UK in recession. The the, the pledge that debt would fall, which Jeremy Hunt claimed he was achieving by the time of the autumn statement, but is really, really tight. And anyway, uh, it's A, not meant, the pledge is not until 2028, and B, is anyone really going to care about that in an election year? Um, and the Stop the Boats, which uh, there were none over Christmas, you'll be surprised to hear, um, but I don't think that's as a, as a result of government policy. And something which uh, we probably aren't going to talk about now, but we'll probably end up talking about in our look forward to 2024 when we pick our 2024 picks, is the Rwanda policy, which I think is going to dominate a, a, certainly a, a lot of the first few months of the year. Uh, the NHS one we'll talk when we talk about the Cabinet picks that we made, but I don't think uh, we're going to be spoiling anything by saying they haven't really achieved the pledge to reduce waiting lists. So, you know, that maybe gives you one and a half out of five. Yeah, uh, uh, that's if you're being generous. I, I So for me, I think if a historian looks back on Sunak, um, I think there's two things they'll remember this year about. One of them is him releasing a video where he was talking in a car and not wearing a seatbelt and subsequently got fined by the police. And the second one is when he was um, interviewing Elon Musk in the AI summit he did. Oh, I'd forgot that. How have I you forgot that? that I, I just wiped that from my memory because of how stupid it was. But again, if you're thinking about this in a sort of wider context of the power of British Prime Minister yeah. vis-a-vis the power of big tech and private companies, I think the fact that the Prime Minister is in such a subservient role tells you a lot about where the where Britain sits in the world stage, the power of the British Prime Minister. Yeah, there's a lot. That's in an, in an Adam Curtis documentary in yeah, twenty years time. Here's the thing: I would I would dispute that slightly, in that I think it's a there's a slight variation of it. It doesn't show necessarily the power of the British Prime Minister or whatever. It shows how what Sunak thinks the power of the British Prime Minister is. If you're like you somebody like say. I don't know, just to, to use a couple of examples, both from both the Tories and, and Labour. If you transplanted Winston Churchill from from like his peak to, to now, he wouldn't be going into those sorts of meetings as, as a subservient individual. You take Tony Blair and put him into the into the, the more modern context and, and he wouldn't be going into those meetings in the subservient role. He would be going in there both well, both of them would be going in there with a with a notion of this is what we're trying to do this is what it all what it's all going to be and they'd be working towards something and they'd be put, putting up a fight for it 
the issue that, that Sunak's got is that I genuinely don't think he actually thinks Britain's got a leg to stand on necessarily. So for all the talk of like the Tories like to do of like talking Britain down, the actions of Sunak and the likes with this sort of stuff demonstrate that they don't think Britain's particularly great and they're the ones arguably talking Britain down in a lot of ways, I'd say. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So uh, if, and some commentators I think said this around the time of the AI summit, is that will Great Britain end up being a bit more like, say, Reykjavik or Geneva? It's uh, essentially, it's a medium-sized European power where big countries come and discuss the great issues because it's quite a nice place to go and discuss them rather than somewhere that actually moves and shakes on the world stage. Um it's probably not the right podcast to work out if that's an accurate assessment or not. But I think the, for me, the the II summit and where Sinak sees the power of the prime minister is that it's more, he doesn't have a grand strategy. It's more about these smaller retail policies, which you think he can push through, whether it's AI, whether it's the sort of phasing removal of smoking, whether it's a sort of more introduction of math, teaching maths, and extending that to post-16 qualifications. It's piecemeal things like that, which I think Sunak may well be passionate about personally, but electorally is neither here nor there. And so I think Starmer does edge this, partly because he obviously has a strategy which is paying off and working. Sunak doesn't have a strategy at all. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, so Starmer, Edgy Sunak, not that anyone's counting, of course, but that's that's one for me, so I'll just make sure I've made a note of that. Appenet picks. I picked Michael Gove because I thought he's the kind of chap that gets the trains running on time and so might achieve some cabinet stuff. You picked Steve Barkley, um, who at the time was health secretary, and I suppose in the context of the health strikes, you, uh, you thought he might sort of move or shake, either for good or ill. Again, I think this is a pretty difficult one, isn't it? Because so um, Steve Barkley, well, for a start, he's not health secretary anymore. He now works at DEFRA. And I would say in term, that's a, I would say that's a step down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't quite know enough about the Tory party to know whether they see farming as less important than health. But I think that health still, like, in terms of budget anyway, Health win, health wins over Defra. The impression I get with Steve Barclay's health secretary is that he was less interested with trying to sort out the health strikes, more interested in pursuing a lot of the government's culture war issues. So there was um, his um, call to try and stop trans women entering female wards. There was also uh, an article in the Telegraph recently, which um, uh, Steve Barclay saying, "I blocked schools from imposing vegetarian diets when I was health secretary." It was good to see that the the Steve Barclay is. Trying his best to stop the encroaching authoritarianism that we are seeing in our system. Yeah, truly, Steve Barclay is the best of us. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think Barclay's done particularly much of note in any real capacity. Uh, so, and I think just by virtue of Michael Gove being Michael Gove, like he gets it. Um, well, because Michael Gove, we are recording this in Birmingham, and Michael Gove now, I think, is Viceroy of Birmingham. I think he's Viceroy <laughs> of Birmingham, I believe is the title. So yeah, he's appointed commissioner as Michael Gove runs Birmingham. Yeah, so. and 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 more. And, and if, actually, if you take that that kind of aspect of like local government finances and things like that, given there are 
more and more councils which are turning around and saying, hey, we've got a problem. You know, uh, Section 22 notices kind of seemingly coming out of a variety of different places um, across the uh, political spectrum as well. It is a major issue and it is the issue that Michael Gove is in charge of. So like from a movers and shakers perspective, I think it kind of has to be him. He's also, I think, symptomatic of just a lack of progress the government is able to do. So you look at housing, it's another big area on his portfolio. Um go put forward a sort of renters reform bill, which is still sort of clogging up the commons just before the uh, parliament broke for the Christmas recess. There was some stuff that he was saying about housing reforms, um, about get, essentially trying to uh, name and shame councils who weren't building enough houses and get their housing powers taken away from them. And in a very, very Michael Gove way, Obviously, the councils that he was name checking, one of them is Medway, which is one of the councils that Labour took from the Tories in May election. And the other person he was talking about in the interviews was Sadiq Khan. And obviously, London's up for a mayor election next year. And um, you have to love the naked political opportunism opportunism in that. The, the, the spirit of Gordon Brown and George Osborne hangs high. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the thing with um, Michael Gove. Uh, is that he is very much uh, a consummate politician and an effective politician as well. So that means when he's working towards things, he will get things done, whether we like it or not. Um, but it also means he will take a, uh, a uh, chance to um, have a stab at someone at the same time. In a purely metaphorical sense, Yeah, we should point out. Yes. Um, I think, well, I, I think Nail Braverman, uh, Braverman at the start of the year, uh, and I said that she was more likely to have left the cabinet by the end of the, the year than to have achieved something. Mm -hmm. um, but I do wonder if maybe she should have picked Jeremy Hunt. I, I thought that given Hunt's role was to rescue Liz Truss, that it, 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 he would make less moving and shaking this year. But I think actually you can tell that the government, where it's trying to get a recovery is economically. And with his autumn statement, that's where a lot of the moving and shaking in government happened. And the fact that essentially the economy is doing so poorly and everyone thinks it's doing poorly. And yet Jeremy Hunt, his personal ratings haven't taken a battering in the same way that say Rishi Sunak's have, I think is testament to his particular political skills. So I, th th I think that's my main regret. But if that's my main regret of 2023, we're not doing too badly. <laughs> Uh, Shadow Cabinet then, um, you picked Rachel Reeves and I picked Wes Streeting. Did you? You said Ed Miliband on the thing. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, in that case, well, I, this is proper wish fulfillment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Ed Miliband then. Well, uh, at least that's what you sent to me. So. <laughs> that, that must be right then. Well, that tells you what I think of that particular pick, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> I think the logic for you going for Ed Miliband was very much like Miliband is quite an influential figure within the Labour Party, um, and certainly with his focus on like more kind of like green issues and things like that. You, you can see why you you chose him, and kind of he's the sort of thing that has like a like a fingers in a lot of pies sort of approach, uh, I, I guess, to politics. And uh, so I don't think that Miliband was necessarily a bad pick at the time. Uh, I just don't think he's done much of note. I mean, the 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 flip side is that the twenty eight billion pledge is mentioned almost exclusively by conservatives, 
in every single election broadcast. So uh, you could claim if you were going to try. And again, <laughs> it, there's nothing wrong with the 28 billion, I don't think. You know, it's basically so that we can not rely on Putin for our um, electricity right. supplies, which is, yeah, with our energy supplies, which is nice. But I realised that um, I'm indulging in the height of sophistry and I was meant to lead off with your verdict first. So go on. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I, I think for me, between Rachel Reeves and Ed Miliband, it's got to be Rachel Reeves. Like, again, going back to what I was saying about Starmer and part of the, you know, everything's very calm. Everything is calm. Not a lot of risks or chances have been taken. Not a lot's been necessarily said or, or done in a lot of ways. That's kind of like very headline grabbing. That is a very good practice um seemingly based on the polls but i think a big part of that is also the influence of rachel reeves kind of going you don't announce something unless it's costed and i think like rachel reeves is very much a a figure who is in the background doing a lot and she'll pop up here and there and 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 and, and with with the, the little the odd announcement or or whatever but the actual influence that she has as the shadow chancellor shaping up what should be um labor's uh program for government is going to be massive and short of anything specific for anyone else i i have to say like it would have to go to, to rachel reeves i agree i think she's an absolute pivotal member of starmer's team and that also it's not just the background but her moving into the foreground too so her conference speech this year was particularly impressive and i think it's maybe the first time anyone has thought maybe potential future leader um in a way that i don't think was ever talked about before um and certainly they are I don't think that securonomics will ever really become a word, no matter how many times Rachel Reeves says it. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it's very much one of those things that's like destined for the the, the the scrap bin of like political terminology, like alarm clock Britain and uh, redistribution. Yeah, we go. But I I think though the argument behind it about sort of economic security, I think that is absolutely one. One hundred percent um so well there we go right so that's that's one back for you despite me trying to change substitute my pick at the last minute um i mean it, it, even with even if you had uh gone for west street Inc., like I, I still think it would be reeves it would so we'll move on to the back benches i picked boris johnson and you picked graham brady um and despite Rishi Sunak's best efforts, we, there, there have not been sufficient letters to the 1922 committee yet for the leadership challenge. Who knows in 2024, listeners? We haven't talked about the banter timeline in a while. But I, so I think for Graham Brady, one of the things that I mentioned at the start of the year that would be interesting is that at uh, Altrincham and Sale, which is Brady's seat, has a healthy but not overwhelming Tory majority in a 60% remain voting constituency. And it's therefore the kind of area where if we're going to see lots of Tory MPs stand down, actually Graham Braid is an interesting barometer of how um, how secure Conservatives feel in their seats or not. And Brady has announced he's standing down. I believe he did so in March, along with approximately 812 other Conservative MPs. Um and others like Jeremy Hunt, who I think really do want to step down, but are essentially being forced to stay on. Um, 
And so I think that that bellwether is is significant, but it's not necessarily moving and shaking. Whereas Boris Johnson um, has moved and shaken even while exiting Parliament. So we've got the fact that he stood down anyway in the first place. Um, actually, as well, the Uxbridge by-election is, I think, one of the more significant by-elections and will be seen as more significant in recent years, partly because the loss of it was attributed to the ULES scheme. And I think that that really, I don't don't necessarily have a huge amount of evidence for this, but the impression I get is that really did scare Keir Starman and his team into making any more radical notion about sort of combating the blight of cars, which let's face it, completely ruined cities or taking more radical action on trying to clean up poisonous air or or on climate change itself. Um, and I think if anything, the results of though that by-election was massively over-interpreted because on the back of it, Rishi Sunak decided he was going to be the friend of the motorist and he was going to scrap HS2 and instead he was going to repair all potholes in London. And it's made no difference to anything. No. Other um, than to really annoy the parts of the places that aren't London. <laughs> Well, again, a, a symptom of being in the political class, I think, is over-interpreting the results of by-elections. Oh, absolutely. Obviously, now Boris Johnson is a commentator for the Daily Mail, who we'll be talking about later on, um, made headline, front-page headlines in the eye because uh, Boris Johnson this week um, slammed, and that's the journalistic verb, Steve, is slammed Rishi Sunak for the lack of action on nuclear energy policy, which obviously Boris Johnson could do nothing about in its three years in Downing Street. Or indeed, uh, the, the the years before that, where he was uh, in one of the great offices of state and had influence and power. Don't mention that again, Steve. It's still too depressing to contemplate. <laughs> but And also, uh, the legacy of Long Johnson, uh, you can see in the COVID inquiry as well, where the uh, numerous messages showing just how incompetent and amoral and dysfunctional his Downing Street operation was and his attitude to the pandemic. Um, I think he's going to continue to hit the Tory party and and did make a a lot of waves. So um, I I think it's it's Johnson by, well, a mile or two. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think my my logic behind uh, the Graham Brady prick was uh, the assumption that we'd have more psychodrama from the Conservative Party, which which we have had, but it's been a lot more constrained. I think largely because the Conservatives realise that it's just not feasible to uh, look like that they might get rid of yet another prime minister um, so close to uh, well, in, in, in so close to a time where they're going to be forced to call an election uh, and especially after they've gone through god knows how many um at this point in in so few years um as a result i, I don't necessarily think brady was a bad pick um but I, I it's not lived up to the uh to the to its potential simply because i think the conservatives have been a lot more restrained in terms of how they're going about trying to actually uh influence Sunak and they haven't quite got to the point where they're fully throwing it the, where the right is fully throwing its toys out the pram as much as oh, they're trying to get to that point oh I think the right has fully thrown its toys out the pram I think they just realized that it's not another leader, of them. 
Well, and also a leadership contest now would just look completely ridiculous or completely ridiculous. So I think where we were at the start of 2023 was not quite knowing, given the period of flux, just how the backbenches would play out this year. And I think something we did talk about at the time was it's very difficult when the government has a working majority, more than 50, it's hard to find a lot of drama. So I suppose I wonder, and again, I don't think we could have found these We'd have needed a lot of um, starry predictive quality, which this podcast is not necessarily known for, uh, to, to point these out. But I wonder if someone, if you're going to pick someone on the Tory right who wasn't Boris Johnson, maybe someone like Danny Kruger or Miriam Cates from that sort of new Conservatives group. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe, but they're, even then, like they're not household like, like a better term household names in terms of like political circles yet so well, which in no but but again it's 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 that sort of moving and shaking in the tory party and that they mm. are i think making their presence known and again if you're thinking about select committee chairs someone like diana johnson at the home office who politico named checked as one of their back batches of the year today or someone like um alicia cairns who um annoyed Rishi Sunak at the recently liaison committee, but how much they are—they've actually moved and shaken. I think it's—I think it is minimal. I think so. Um, So, uh, so, so we'll move on. So I think that's yeah. So, so Johnston over Brady. Um, I think the interesting thing is, um, and again, it's an interesting counterfactual. Is if Johnston hadn't stood down, I do think that regardless of what I've just said about a challenge being idiocy, I do wonder if we would have had the challenge by now. Oh, almost certainly we would have done. Um, We'd have just hit a point where it was just not feasible. Um, Johnson wouldn't have been able to do much to recover any uh, like drops in drops in ratings and and everything. And Johnson is still Johnson and wholly inadequate um, for for the position. At, at, At the very least, Sunak you know he's taking the job seriously. Like, you might disagree with him on an awful lot of things, but he uh, he genuinely is take, trying to take it seriously in a way that Johnson didn't. And But you can see that in their reactions to the COVID inquiry, where 100%. Sunak had obviously prepped and done the work, um, and Johnson really hadn't. Um, but... Um, I, I suppose it's Sunak realizing that politics isn't a meritocracy, and suddenly you know, the amount of work you put in doesn't necessarily erode that poll lead or provide a decent policy. Um, speaking of eroding poll leads, we didn't pick a Lib Dem, and hello, Mark, by the way, um, in neither of our big two party section, maybe for the first time. So I picked Nicola Sturgeon. That's a blast from the past, isn't it? I know. Do, you remember, do you remember Nicola Sturgeon? Yeah. Apparently she used to run the country. Um, uh, and you picked Richard Tice. Yeah, for leader of the Reform Party. Mm. So this is a really interesting uh, kind of uh, uh, like dynamic between the two of these. So like on, on the much more kind of like simpler end of things, Richard Tice, a leader of the Reform Party. Reform are currently holding just below double digits, I think. I um, think 8.3 is the latest I, I saw from yeah. the actual calculus. 
So they've they've seen an increase in their vote coming through. Um, they've announced that they are going to be challenging the Conservatives in every seat, um, which is obviously great for Labour and the left, um, because it means we've got a stronger likelihood of a split uh, right-wing vote. Um, and yeah, they've just seen... There's, there's not been masses uh, of, of like reform party-led news or, or anything like that, but they've just slowly been gaining in the polls and... They've been, uh, as a result of that, they're causing panic in the Conservative Party, which is one of the reasons why I think they're seeing so much doubling down on these things like the Rwanda policy and various other bits and pieces like that, um, because they're things that are true blue Conservative uh, topics. And, uh, you know, it it should stop, um, in theory, at least the uh, runoff of votes to the Reform Party. So in terms of influence, reform by its success is influencing the the government's agenda big tick in terms of richard tice's favorability sturgeon is such an interesting one though for this because at the beginning of the year she was first minister and i think she'd been one or one or both of us at various points have selected sturgeon as our pick for this sort of uh movers and shakers thing i think every year because she's just been such a solid central plank of british politics for so so long now she's gone and she's gone because of dodgy dealings um and issues in the smp which i thought she went because she was exhausted steve that's what she said in her speech i'm i mean yes and then 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 she was brought in for questioning over financial affairs which uh, as was her husband and it the, the long and short of it is that even though Nicola Sturgeon is no longer in power in Scotland, she is probably directly responsible for the collapse in the SNP vote that we're now seeing in Scotland, which is now leading to a situation where Labour are looking to pick up like a significant number of seats to the point where the SNP might not have a majority in terms of like Westminster seats uh, anymore. Um, that's before you factor in the Lib Dems, before you factor in, uh, in, in, in any potential Tory gains. I'm not as au fait with, their, with what they might be able to pick up. Because again, that dynamic of nationalist versus unionist could come out in some really interesting ways, potentially in the next general election. Um, but because Sturgeon's stepping down has caused all of that, that's a massive influence that she's had. It's not a positive influence of what she'd want, but the the kind of like the ripple effect of that on British politics is significant. Like it's this literally before this, you would struggle. Uh, like a lot of the. Um, the, uh, the 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 kind of like the, the polling projections and things to get to a um, a Labour majority involved, you know, Labour taking away a, a load of seats, which seemed fa- fa- fanciful previously, given current polling, nowhere near as fanciful as previously thought. But it would it was viewed as a very difficult thing to actually get to a Labour majority. Not now, because when you factor Scotland back in play for Labour, suddenly doesn't matter if we don't take obscene an obscene number of seats from the Tories, though again it still looks like we probably will do. Um, it just becomes a lot easier for Labour to get a majority, and the influence of that on the on the uh, on the wider British political scene is massive. So I think it has to go to Sturgeon, although not for any reason she'd be pop happy to to be there. 
No, a, a very rare example this year of a non-conservative politician moving and shaking uh, by incompetence almost. As you say, it's, it's the her resignation, her questioning, the investigation to SNP finances, um, the absolutely calamitous SNP leadership election that followed where... Um, Kate Forbes then refuses to serve under Hamza Youssef, who's the new first minister. Hamza Youssef um, will almost certainly just be known for one of the most immortal political lines, which is, well, it's never good news when one of your colleagues gets arrested. And that sort of culminating in Scottish Labour's rising polies and the gain in the Rutherglen by-election. And I know we have talked about how by-elections and their results tend to get over-analysed. But actually... I wonder if Brother Glenn is one of the more significant by-election wins this year, if only because the swing is so much more than you expected. So in a lot of the other by-elections this year, like Uxbridge, like Tamworth, um, like Sel- oh, Sel- oh, oh, monumental though they were, that sort of swing can happen in by-elections or was often in line with national projections, whereas Brother Glenn, I think... So- surprised everyone at just how much the swing was and as you say that has massive implications uh for the future the usual reason we select nicola sturgeon is because of the constitutional question that's something that didn't really play out much in 2023 might in 2024 and maybe we leave it to our movers and shakers picks to see if anyone either of us picks a smp politician and discuss it there commentator or publication. So you picked Guido Fawkes and their various alumni, including people like Alex Wickham and Harry Cole and various other political correspondents who, whose job appears to be to sit in planes with Rishi and I can get photographed by press association photographers. Um, and I picked the Daily Mail, and I think the Daily Mail wins. Oh, one hundred percent. Like the, the uh, in 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 my defence, like the likes of Alex Whipper, Wickham has, has actually started doing like proper journalism um, compared to like Harry Cole, who just basically licks the boots of whoever the the conservative party leader is at, at that point in time um but uh, but yeah no absolutely the daily mail certainly in regards to how it's influencing the conservative gov- government right now with its focus on things like the small boat crossings and things like that absolutely hands down you there, there's not really a case to be made i think when i selected the guido forks kind of like coterie i was thinking that it's the sort of thing where they have the a, a lot of them have ins with different wings of the Conservative Party. So much like my choice of Graham Brady, I was thinking, ah, it could be more of that psychodrama. Suddenly, you know, these people become very important um, figures in terms of telling the story of that psychodrama and, and things like that. But um, that hasn't happened. So yeah, no, Daily Mail, hands down. It's not 2008 more, Steve, anymore, Steve. This the rise of traditional media. <laughs> you know, Vice News are closing. Vice News are closing. Buzzfeed is closing. The Daily Mail strides on. <laughs> the song in its heart and a smile on its lips. We'll leave it to you, listeners, to decide what song it would be. And finally, a wildcard picks. So I picked Paul Novak, General Secretary of the TUC, and you picked Nigel Farage of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Yeah, um, something that I don't think even I could, would have predicted was a, was a thing that would happen. Who um, knew Nigel Farage's bottom would be such a big feature of the political landscape this year? God. Yeah. 
weirdly despite being more arguably being more mainstream relevant quote unquote by appearing on I'm a celebrity get me out of here um, than than he ever has previously it's not even the reason he's I I think he's won this um, selection because again I think it goes back to just the influence on the conservative party we talked about reform and Richard Tice but the big big boogeyman for the Conservative Party is, and probably until the day he dies, will be Nigel Farage, because Nigel Farage, all he has to do is utter the words, well, I might run, or I might become leader of, or something like that, and suddenly they, the, the Conservative Party has a, has nightmares, because fundamentally, Farage is one of the key reasons we ended up leaving the, the, the EU, the, one of the biggest policy changes that the world that the Britain has has that seen, the world has ever seen, seen. Yeah. <laughs> bigger than Caesar crossing the Rubicon. I mean, arguably, yes. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I mean, in terms of p- p- impact on people's lives and sheer numbers, I, I don't want to end up being one of those guys that TikTok kind of disses <laughs> for thinking about the Roman Empire a lot. But I feel like the establishment of the Roman Empire and the subsequent colonization of most of the mediterranean probably did have some more longer term impacts on more of europe <laughs> oh yeah but we don't know that's just because we, we've got the history to study that we don't know what what's coming off of the back of brexit yet look if uh, brexit ends up changing the language of most of the mediterranean i mean potentially it could do like Look, we're no longer there to argue against things like you know uh, a shared lingua franca. Or, we're no or longer we're no longer an imperial power, Steve. I'm sorry <laughs> to have to break it to you. Um, the, uh, the the counterpoint to your argument is that the big bogeyman actually of the Conservative Party is the trade union movement, and the trade union movement I think has had a pretty decent 2023. Um, still has I think public support and. The fact the Tories are trying to bring in minimum service legislation, um, again, it's part, I think, of that culture war against the unions. Um, so I think you can I think you can argue them being a pretty um solid pick. I I I feel I feel vindicated in my pick, but I think 100%. That I think you're right that Farage edges it, if only because I think one of the defining political images of this year wasn't just Nigel Farage's bottom, it was also his front dancing with Pretty Patel at Tory party conference. And actually, uh, it's not so much, I think, the Tory party disliked Nigel Farage. I think it's almost that like the Tory party liked Nigel Farage a little bit too much. I think it should be their leader. And um, that's the scary thing, I think. Yeah, I think the I think the only thing that probably stops that being in the case is just the timing of it all. Like, un- unle- like the, the likelihood that Farage gets selected for a winnable seat this time round it's basically nil. It's it's just not going to be. It's just not going to be something that they could they could make happen, or I'd be very surprised if it did happen. Um, which means you're waiting another four years minimum for that. At which point, is he relevant again? But then again, we've said that about Nigel Farage before, and he and he's unlike a cockroach that just won't die. Um, he finds his way back. Farage won't do it because being leader of the opposition would require him to do some work, and as soon as the hard work happens, he'll run away. In the same way that he was on his leader in the UKIP the day after the referendum. Yeah. Like, he'll quite happily have a pint and grin for the cameras, but anything that requires actual hard yards, he won't be interested in. 
yeah, he'll happen. Like I could see him joining, joining the Conservatives, being put in the House of Lords, and him effectively becoming the, um, the spokesperson for the right, um, of the Conservative Party. Um, which, t- to be brutally honest, would probably be one of the best decisions they made because Farage is at least a capable public speaker, which most of them aren't. The other thing, though, is, and I think this is something that Steve Richards said in his latest um, live show in King's Place, is that it goes back to your choice of Richard Tice, that if reform are going to stand a full slate of candidates in the upcoming general election, and Nigel Farage presumably will make some sort of comeback, probably as leader of reform, that in that election campaign, Nigel Farage will say some terrible things about the Conservative government. And if he ever, ever, ever tries to run for Tory leader, they will just have a long list of things that Farage has said about the Conservatives that mean he won't become leader. Imagine a party, Steve, electing a leader who has said terrible things about their record in government. It would never happen. Nope, never happened under Labour. Never. <laughs> Literally never. Nope. And on but, that note... <laughs> what's the finals, Hallie? Uh, uh, 5-2, I'm afraid. Yeah, seems fair. Mm. Well, uh, which I think might well be at least a second year in a row. So uh, I think it might be a hat-trick for you. Well, uh, I'd like to thank all my friends and family, uh, some of whom might even be listening. Um, <laughs> but tune in to our first episode of 2024, where we will talk about our picks for what proves to be an almost momentous year. Um those long-term listeners will notice we have not quite been able to arrange a quiz for logistical reasons um, involving changes to the bunker security system. But we are hoping to get that quiz uh, in at some point in the new year when diaries allow. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Paperback Rioter. And I'm at Acoustic Radical. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. Happy New Year. Yeah.